Homeless Link is the national membership charity for frontline homelessness services. We work to improve services through research, guidance and learning, and campaign for policy change that will ensure everyone has a place to call home and the support they need to keep it. In this series of the Going Beyond podcast, we will discuss the effects of working in the homelessness sector on individual well-being, looking at managing stress, burnout, the effects of vicarious trauma, and the importance of debriefing and reflective practice. In each episode, we will speak to a guest who will tell us about their expertise, provide practical tips for improving well-being, and discuss the realities of working in the sector. I'm Jo Turner, National Practice Development Project Manager at Homeless Link, and I'll be your host. We hope you enjoy it. In this episode, we will be speaking with Nick Maguire, clinical psychologist working at the University of Southampton. We will discuss what drives the feelings of burnout for people working in the homelessness sector and discuss ways to stop ruminating about work-related stress. Hi Nick, how are you doing? Excellent, thank you very much. Yes, it's um, an interesting little journey up, but uh, yeah, really good, thank you. Thank you for being here and it's really great to have you in person because a lot of things are on Zoom these days and... Uh, it's nice to be able to connect with someone face to face. It really is. It really is. And, and seeing somebody in 3D is amazing. Yes, <laughs> it's incredible. So just to get us started for the listeners, could you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do and perhaps like your area of expertise? So uh, my main role is Associate Professor in Clinical Psychology. So I've been a clinical psychologist now for 20 odd years, but I work at the University of Southampton. So within that particular role, we um, do quite a lot of research into homelessness. And where we're kind of specialising, I guess, is the interaction of the individual and their environment in terms of research questions. So it's not just what are the mental health issues experienced by people who are homeless, it's how does the context operate which makes it more likely that somebody's going to be able to survive or not survive or be able to be going to be able to work with somebody or not. And it's as much about the systems and the context as it is about the individual. And so, you know, the models that we work for, we we try and engage in the full complexity of models of homelessness where we can acknowledge that in terms of causation, we've got massive numbers of factors right from up from the way way in which we configure our economy. So we know that homelessness tends to be associated with child poverty. And that will be associated with how we configure the economy and the wealth differential, right down to the kind of the micro stuff about the genetics of individual difference, for instance, and all of the factors in between. So we sort of choose, because I'm a psychologist, I'm quite into you know, where the internal meets the external, so where our internal world's mind meets behaviour, how we behave. Um, given our, the internal world in, in relation to what's going on externally. So that's the kind of research we do. So we're really into um, the mental health factors associated with particularly chronic abuse and neglect, um, but also how systems exclude. So we're looking at things like our gatekeepers in NHS services, the attitudes towards people homeless and, and what they think are the nature of the problems, and then how that leads to exclusion. And then how policymakers configure um, commissioning processes and, and how that impacts on the way the services work, which impacts on how successful they are in terms of engaging people. So the full kind of complexity of the way in which we think about homelessness, because it is, as you well know, massively complex. But the other area of my job, which I'm really enjoying, is um, we run a not-for-profit social enterprise. And so that's set up to serve people who are homeless and to provide psychology services 
for people who are homeless, but also provide those services for people who serve people who are homeless. Mm-hmm. So right through hostel uh, staff are, are primarily who we want to serve. And any frontline workers who are working with people who are homeless who perhaps are struggling or perhaps would benefit or find useful an understanding, the understanding, the psychological understanding that maybe we bring to people who are homeless. So having those two hats is great because you get to sort of do the research and the training, but you also get to practice. And so we get to take the research that we generate and do it, actually take it into practice and we configure our practice according to the research we do in the university. That's amazing. Yeah, that's so interesting. It, it is interesting. It's great. I love my job. Yeah, yeah. It's, I want to do it. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Thank you so much. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for being part of this podcast. So this series of the Going Beyond podcast is all about discussing the effects of well-being on individuals who are working in the homelessness sector. And as we know, and as I know from previous experience, that burnout is actually very common for people who are working in this sector. So I guess I just wanted to start by first asking you, what do you think drives this feeling of being burnt out? So, as you well know, and I well know, the you know, having experienced some of those difficulties myself, there are it's complex, as is everything in uh, in homelessness, and um, we can start to think about the the nature of the emotions that we feel. So, the kind of the three major sort of emotions or the main emotions that seem to contribute to burnout. Uh, when we feel anxious and worried, when we feel angry and frustrated, and when we feel sort of sad and hopeless. And if those emotions are go unchecked and continue to present, or if the external environment drives those emotions for long periods of time, it becomes very difficult to operate. And that's what I think we call burnout. When we, we try to cope with those emotions, sometimes by just mailing stuff in, you know, you, you get so fed up and you get so disillusioned and you can't cope with the kind of the anxieties anymore that you might be turning up to work, but you're not really putting yourself into it because, mm-hmm. because of the anxiety and the hopelessness and the frustration has become chronic and toxic. And there are a number of kind of different things which will drive those emotions. So one of the major ones I think is is about us feeling effective and valuable. Now the you know the opportunities for failure in, in this work are huge, right? Mm-hmm. Or the opportunities rather for experiencing ourselves as failing, as not succeeding are huge because we're working with people who perhaps have very different priorities from the ones that we might bring, from the help that we might provide. That might not be of any interest whatsoever for some of the people we're working with, particularly people who maybe have suffered chronic abuse and neglect. Why would I look after myself? Why would I try and work with a drug problem? They just want me to do that. Why would I do that? Not interested. And we come along and we're trying to work and help people. Now, if, if we don't sort of check what's going on in ourselves in terms of what we want for other people, then there's a real danger of us experiencing ourselves as failures repeatedly, day after day, mm-hmm. week after week. And, and a lot of us go into this kind of work with a set of ideals and a set of values about support and about help and about wanting to make a difference for people who are multiply excluded and multiply marginalised. 
Now you've got there. You've got you know two very you've got a, an ideology or a set of ideals and values which is driving us to do one thing, and us not being able to achieve those things, and that leads to both kind of anxiety. Oh my God, people think I'm stupid. People think I'm ineffective. You know what? People don't value me, and also well. Actually, I don't value myself because I'm not mm. doing, I'm not achieving what I wanted to achieve. Yeah, I can't see change. It's interesting you say that because I think people go into whatever kind of workplace hoping to achieve things. And it's about what achievement means to every individual. And when you're working in the homelessness sector, achievement is very different to someone working in a, in a different area of work, I think. And if, like you said, you're going in and you've got these goals in mind, potentially that you think an individual that you're supporting you think they could benefit from and if those goals take longer than you you hope to meet or there's trips along the way then yeah like you said you feel a bit like a failure um and then that sort of if that happens sort of time and time again you like you said that's going to lead to that kind of feelings of i'm a failure because i haven't been able to help this person the way i wanted to that's it yeah. I, I couldn't help. Yeah. I therefore have no value in these kind of things. And of course, what we often do is we look for too much change. We expect to wander in and we expect to sort of sit and maybe work with somebody and then suddenly behavioural change is going to take place. Sometimes what we need to do is pull right back to the tiniest little increments of change. Perhaps somebody's not interested remotely in the kind of changes we might you know, be able to facilitate. But what they might do is to turn up to talk to us. Mm. And that's the change. And we need to value that kind of change. Yeah. But if we're not looking for that change, we're looking for behavioural change. Somebody's going to get better or somebody's going to just, um, reduce their drug use or somebody's going to fill in the form so they can get. And if we think, if we tie our value to those kind of outcomes, we fall flat on our face. Yeah. Whereas if we can remember that maybe somebody is only just capable of coming to see whether we are worth talking to and testing us out. Why would I invest in you, my time in you? You're just going to be unreliable like everybody else in the world. And that takes some bravery on behalf of the people we're working with. And we need to be ready to see that as valuable change. Just coming and spending 10 minutes with us rather than the resulting fixer that we think is going to happen. Yeah, and I think as frontline workers, you, you put too much pressure on ourselves. Oh, very much so. Um, That's exactly and that leads to that burnout, is that I've created this huge expectation of what I need to, this change I need to see. And when that change doesn't happen for one reason or another, it, it feels like <coughs> something on us. Um, and really, it's like you said, it's about that individual and when they're ready um, to even make a change or, you know, just have a chat. Like, that's a huge that could be a huge moment for an individual um. absolutely and that's exactly it so we'll come on to how to start to value the tiny things in a, in a little bit i guess yeah but that's just one of the set of emotions so we've got so you know there's a lot of anxiety and sometimes hopelessness around that and anxiety around you know the, the lack of change but there are also you know in some environments it can be very difficult we can get you know a lot of threats and experiences of threats where somebody's shouting or threatening if somebody has has been using and and there are anti uh, there are behaviors which are asocial and which raise anxieties in people around them there's no two ways about it and sometimes the environment the built environment doesn't help there 
some built environments, you know, um, will amplify noise, for example. And noise is going to be inherently stressful, mm. particularly if there's a lot of it, or dark corridors, or the way in which um, people are caused to uh, mingle and congregate or not. And all these things can uh, amplify the, the stresses of interacting with people who are perhaps very upset and very annoyed and very angry. And if that is ongoing and repetitive, the anxiety and the threat experiences of that can drive burnout. Mm. We're constantly vigilant for threat. And if that th experience of threat is constant, that can result in some really, really tricky ongoing toxic stresses. Yes, yeah, so you're kind of constantly in that fight or flight mode where you're, you're ready for something. And I think from experience, being in that state for long periods of time is just not sustainable for anyone. And unfortunately, um, that can happen working in this sector. And it's, yeah, it's thinking about how we can, yeah, move, move away from being in that state of fight or flight. Uh, but it is, it is very difficult. Uh, it's difficult to decide to help ourselves, I think. So that's exactly. So, so some of that will come on to a second, you know, we, and we can describe some of those problems physiologically. So we have around about 20 to 30 minutes of cortisol available to us, secreted by the adrenal glands in order to kind of maintain that fight and flight, which on our evolutionary past was um, adaptive. We, if, you, if you're faced with a predator, you need either to be able to run away first of all, or if you can't run away, then fight. Or if you can't do either of those things, stand very still and hope that it doesn't see you, which is not a terribly useful mm -hmm. evolutionally adaptive process. But, you know, if you can't do that, the two. Now, you know, physiologically, cortisol is a very important chemical in that process. Now, eventually we run out and you get into cortisol fatigue and you feel physically tired. And so there are physical components that go into burnout too if you're constantly exposed to these kind of threats. Yeah. And, and for that feeling of tiredness that goes along with threat, then it's compounded by, oh my God, I'm, I'm shattered, I'm knackered, and I can't do anything and I can't help anybody. Yeah. So it's compounded by the psychology. Yeah, of course. And I think one thing from when I was working in frontline services was kind of bringing that work home and just thinking about things constantly when you're at home and going round and round and round and not actually giving yourself the brain space to just relax. And I think that massively contributes to burnout is that rumination of, of thoughts that's gone on. So we're not even escaping those threats when we go home mm. because we're reimagining those situations and we're sat at home in an activated state because of how we're ruminating. And and then, you, of course, you get into sleep deprivation because we're ruminating when it's quiet and there's no other stimuli and that's when we're more likely to ruminate. And ruminate, particularly ruminating about how we could have handled something better. Mm. And then even we should have handled something better. Now, I challenge anybody to say, you know, they've never thought, I, I should have done that better. And that, of course, then drives you back into that anxious state. Oh, my God, how many people saw that? They're going to judge me. I'm going to get disciplined. I'm going to get sacked. All these kind of things. And we all make mistakes. It's, it's impossible not to do. And it's impossible not to fail in certain terms. But we'll talk a little bit about how we think about failure in a minute. Mm, yeah. So do you feel that there are certain contextual factors 
to feelings of burnout and anxiety, those different feelings that you spoke about? So when we're thinking about psychologically informed environments, we can start to think about sort of, you know, a framework around it. So we've talked a little bit about the built environment. And the built environment can drive strain, can strain us. Yeah, strip lighting, for instance. Strip lighting can be, it's a very low level stress, high frequency lighting. Lower frequency yellows and oranges are much more soothing. So when we're thinking about hostels, for instance, we need to be thinking even about the form of lighting that we're using. Um, because they can, it can just lower, just take a little bit of the edge off the strain that we feel. And if we can keep doing that, keep sort of slicing away at the strain, we start to start to make meaningful change to our work environment. So thinking about uh, noise, thinking about light, thinking about green spaces, places to go where we can escape just for a bit, just to have some quiet time, places to talk to other people and to share. Those are kind of really important. And if you don't, if you, if, and so the kind of the, the toxic environments tend not to have these places. They tend not to have places where you can be just go and have some quiet time. Um, now, linked to that uh, the, is the permission we give ourselves to look after ourselves. Lots and lots of shoulds in this world that I've just, uh, discovered. Mm-hmm. And they, I, you know, I discover, apply them to myself as well. I should be able to cope. It's a really big one. Yeah. And, and if other people see I can't cope, then I'm not coping, then they're going to judge me negatively and they're going to think I'm not good enough. And, and not just in my own colleagues or my, and my, or my managers, but also the people I'm working with. So I should be able to cope. And so therefore, I, you know, what I don't do is go and share my troubles with somebody else. And so this is what we do to ourselves. We can have the environmental contextual factors and then we... And they're exacerbated massively by what we do to ourselves in our heads. Self-compassion is massively important, generally, and even more important, arguably, in, in our world. And if we're not compassionate with ourselves, we are more likely to engage in that long-term, toxic, self-critical narrative that eventually starts to lead us to kind of think we're rubbish at this job and we, we should be, we, so we're physically turning up, but we're not mentally turning up, and eventually... We might leave the job and go somewhere else. Yeah, it's, it really resonates with me what you said about that, that self-compassion, because I think we're always told to, you know, put on that brave face um, and, you know, you, you need to be professional at work. And this ideal of professionalism is that you don't, potentially don't talk about your feelings, right. um, which is awful. Um, and actually the moment that you do open up to your colleagues or whoever um, and say, actually, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with this, I'm not having a good day, is that, that feeling of release of actually I've kind of got rid of this facade that everything's okay and I've become more human and made a stronger connection with that individual because <coughs> we've you know we've both we've both said we're struggling and, and some of the best times I've had at work is where I've spoken with managers and things and said oh, actually I'm really I'm not doing well today and they say oh you know what I'm glad you said that because I'm not I'm not either and but it's really, it can be quite difficult to kind of step out of that kind of, I'm fine, everything's good, I should be okay, I should be able to manage the situation, but we are all human 
uh, we are not robots and we have uh, we have emotions and uh, we need to talk about them and share and uh, later in this series we will talk about the sort of the importance of re reflective practice being something that's done continuously throughout work and life and also as a group and there's how valuable that is to stop that feeling of bur being burnout because it's quite an, can be sometimes maybe an isolating feeling as well. So this is really interesting and so that begs the question why are we not giving ourselves permission to take some time and to, uh, and to engage in self-compassion and to go and talk to somebody? And a lot of it is internal. Mm. You know, we've got our own stuff which maybe drives this kind of coping, I am a coper type thing, and we can feel strong. But of course it's fragile, particularly if, if the stresses and, if, and strains are chronic and ongoing. But then there are organisational factors. So we need to be looking at what are our leaders and managers doing? Mm. Are they modelling coping all the time, despite whatever's going on? Or are they modelling, actually, do you know what I need? A bit of time for myself. You know, one of the big, really interesting sort of things that we observe, and one of, I guess one of the symptoms of this is, how do people involve, uh, how do people engage with the reflective practice? So we can provide reflective practice to staff, which is, I would argue, is essential for staff groups. But does anybody turn up? And does the management value it? Mm -hmm. Now, if the, if the management aren't communicating, do you know what? This is stuff that we all, we, we all need to be going to, including me. Then what we're doing is modelling that I should be able to cope. I don't need reflective practice. And there are always things to do. There's always some chaos that's going on in a lot of these environments that we can use. Yeah, I can't come to a place because so I need to go and manage that. Mm -hmm. There's always that. Well, you know, of course, what we know is the more we engage in things like reflective practice, the more uh, resources we have mm -hmm. for engaging with people in a more compassionate way and the more effective we are. And one of those processes, one of the, um, the change processes is something called normalisation. When you say to somebody, exactly as you said, do you know what, I'm not coping today, and somebody says, no, nor am I. It's, it's a rough one, isn't it? You both immediately feel better. Mm, yeah. And it's because that experience has been normalised and validated. So we've each validated each other that it's okay not to be coping 100% of the time. And that's one of the, the really important setting conditions. If the management and leadership aren't modelling that and aren't modelling vulnerability, and you being able to say I'm not coping, then the staff group who they lead are less likely to do that and they're more likely to do that. Yeah, and I also think it's about um, what our priorities are and that can be really difficult when you're working frontline in the homelessness sector. Um, and like you said, there's always an excuse to not attend, you know, a reflective practice group or another session that you think would actually really benefit your well-being because often there is something that is deemed kind of way more important in that moment and it's about I guess kind of putting boundaries into place and saying this is my allotted time to actually focus on something that I think is really going to help me in the long term but I think it's like you said with with management and kind of leaders within organizations it's about them promoting what should be people's priorities and actually there's a huge high uh, you know turnover of staff in the homelessness sector because I think the priority is not on 
on staff and it's on people that are accessing services and I you know I absolutely agree that they should be the forefront of everything but we do need to also acknowledge that the impact uh, on working in this sector and at times thinking about what can I do to help myself because so that's that's really interesting because we can then sort of look at well what's driving the prioritization process why am I driving trying to achieve something with somebody rather than listening to what's going on in my own head or my own body and looking after myself. And one of the processes, interestingly, I think is a commission process. Yeah. So a lot of services are commissioned according to very top-down KPIs. You must achieve this, this, this and this. And the reporting processes can be incredibly onerous and detailed. Now, if, if we as, as frontline workers think I have to achieve that KPI, we're not going to prioritise our own, the, the looking after ourselves. Because it's constantly, you're, you've got this idea of, oh my God, I've got to achieve that. Now, that's partly associated with sort of middle management um, processes. Now, a really good sort of operations manager will say, don't worry about the KPIs. I'll worry about those. You go and do you. You go and be establishing great working relationships, earn people's trust. And that's not about trying to change behaviour. Because paradoxically, if you try and change somebody's behaviour, you are much less likely to do it. Mm. And so if a frontline worker is cognizant of these top-down KPIs and trying to achieve a metric, they are much less likely to achieve it and much more likely to burn out. Yeah. So the really good sort of psychologically informed organisations will have that in mind. And so you have these really good middle managers who say, don't worry about KPIs. Yeah. You go and engage somebody. And, because, and, and if you sit with that person, you establish a good working relationship, you are much more likely to be effective yeah. on, on those KPIs. Just don't try and achieve them. Absolutely. No, that's a really, really good point because I think the pressures of meeting outcomes really can destroy uh, making positive change in an individual because potentially you have your own thoughts about what needs to be done and what changes uh, you know that individual should be making and actually it's nothing about that we need to remove the KPIs from that um, and think about what that individual really needs. And the really interesting thing is of course the top-down KPIs is, is an interaction between the commissioning process and then how that's operationalized by the provider if the frontline worker is just left to have a conversation with the person about their own KPIs, what is it you want to change? What do you want to be different? Yeah. And is enabled to have those conversations, then the really interesting thing is they're more likely to hit not only those KPIs, but also the KPIs further up. And so you have, you know, the frontline worker really has to be insulated and, and get on with it. So, for example, when we talk about meaningful outcomes in the meaningful outcomes framework, and so you have uh, you have a chat. You know, we've got some really lovely examples of this, and um, somebody was having a chat with somebody with uh, somebody they were working with, and they said, "What is it you want to change? You know, what's what's important for you?" And this person said, "They didn't say I want to be using less. Mm. They said I want to be spending less time." Great. Yeah. Okay. There you go. And that became. So what is it that's driving that? What are you more likely to be able to be spending more time around people using? What helps you? And that became the kind of the narrative of the conversation. Anyway, what they noticed was, okay, due to the work, because that person had named what they wanted to do, they were intrinsically motivated. 
to engage in the behaviours mm-hmm. to have to to reduce the amount of time they spent around people using. And the really interesting thing, of course, of what happened, their use dropped. They didn't cite their use, their use as, some, as a target. They cited something else. But, but what happened was their use dropped as a result of their own volition. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I think it would be also really interesting to talk a little bit about ways in which we can stop going over things in our heads, um, feeling anxious about work-related stress. What can we do practically to kind of stop ourselves from, from ruminating when we, get, when we get home? So there's a load of stuff that we can do as organisations and a load of stuff we can do as individuals. Mm. You know, it's just always this interaction. So the organisational level, you know, it's 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 talking. It's it's managers and leaders uh, modelling really good, self aware, self compassionate practice. It's thinking about the environment and can we make even small tweaks to the environment? Okay, we might not have a load of capital spent, but we might be able to get rid of some of the strip lighting and replace it with something else. Yeah. You know, yellowy orange LEDs, for instance. Um, that's not massive amount. It is money, but it's not massive amount of money. Can we think about, um, in large areas, sort of putting um, material around, which, are, which is sound absorbing? So it could be cushions, it could be curtains, it could be carpets, it could be anything to absorb sound so that, that, so that particularly people who are sensitive to sound in terms of you know, things like neurodiversity issues aren't driven to that kind of toxic stress or are less likely to. And so you can think about the built environment, you can think about the managerial environment, and then, for us, how do we start to come to terms with this concept of failure? So I put an enormous amount of work into this, into, into working with somebody, and they've gone and binged again. Oh my God, that's wrong. You know, that's, I must be terrible at this, that's my fault. And so what we start to think about is this word failure, and the way we're using words becomes really important. Because failure suggests a binary outcome. I've either succeeded or I've failed. Whereas, of course, actually, we're, we're operating always in shades of grey. And so it's not about failure. It's that at that point in time, that person needed to do that. And it could be something entirely different from what we were working on. And so where we get to is it's not about us. It's not, it's not about us and what we've done. It's about what that person is and where they are in whatever they want to be doing. And sometimes we become so preoccupied with blaming ourselves. And the really interesting thing is sometimes we can't cope with blaming ourselves, so we blame somebody else, we blame them. And we call that a blame trap. And if you're in the blame trap, it's just noticing that. Either I'm to blame or they're to blame. If I'm to blame, I'm rubbish at my job. Okay, I'll blame them. And and I can criticise them. Well, they were just lazy or stupid or whatever. They should have just done what I told them. And that tends to drive just more telling behaviours. Whereas if whereas a compassionate way of thinking about it is, okay, well, you know, the work we did, um, it was useful as the input, and actually we got some great conversations there. And and actually they sat with me whilst they did that. And that could be the change. So pulling right back from the intended change to looking at the what's a worthwhile and meaningful change, which is somebody has sat with you for half an hour discussing whatever it is you were discussing 
that needs to be meaningful. So it's not about us. Mm-hmm. We pull back our expectation to change to something that's meaningful. And we acknowledge and notice when we're likely to blame other people for this apparent failure. And we get right out of a sense of failure. It's not about failure. Um, for us, we argue. I mean, if we can go with failure, you know, if you don't fail, you're not trying hard enough. Failure is part of a journey. And the business people say this and, you know, all the time. Failure has to be part of success. And all failure then becomes is a function of time. I haven't quite succeeded yet. So it's not failure, it's a function of time. And it's, and it's actually on the journey too to some form of success with that person. Now, ultimately, there are some people that we just can't work with or can't work with us. You know, we're people and we're highly complex and sometimes those interactions just don't work. And that needs to be okay. It needs to be all right. And so that, you know, there's a, and this is where teams are important and remembering that teams have different skills and different people with different personalities and preconceptions and the like. And so remembering the team it's not an individual, it's about the individual, it's not about me, it's about us and about the team and about how we succeed as a team. So there's a lot we could do on our own heads around noticing this narrative around failure, blame, blaming ourselves or blaming others um, and noticing how we can, you know, just, and there's two ways you can go with that. So when we're thinking about, um, we call it metacognitive, awareness, awareness of how we're thinking. And mindfulness is an amazing kind of tool to do that, to be start to become aware of how we're thinking about ourselves. Now, for some people, um, they're not so, they don't use mindfulness so well. Mindfulness isn't a panacea. Some people, it's amazing, and they really get it, and they, and, and they make solid use of it. Now, I'm a bit of a concrete thinker, um, a bit of a sort of engineering type thinker, and so mindfulness isn't so useful for me. But I am quite good at uh, like challenging. Did I really fail? Not really. Actually, it's not about failure. And so we're dealing with the content. Now, both of these things are ways of bringing to awareness the kind of the, that negative narrative that then drives some of these things. And in terms of the rumination stuff, some of the helpful ways of thinking about that are we can think of thinking as a behaviour. It is something that we're doing in our head. If that makes sense. Yeah. And then, so if we are attending to, if we are doing rumination, we're going over and over the things that happened during the day. I should have done that. I should have said that. If only I said that, that would have been brilliant. But I didn't. And I feel really annoyed about it now. And, and that maintains our arousal and gets in the way of sleep. So that's something we do in our heads. Now, if we're attending to that, the question then becomes, can we attend to something else? Can we bring our attention to something different? Mm-hmm. And this is, and mindfulness has some really nice ways of describing that. Now, for some people, we can bring our attention to a book. Now, for some people, I'm, I'm not very good at that. If I'm a bit wound up and I'm ruminating, I'll just read the same paragraph over and over again. Mm-hmm. It doesn't yeah. really distract me. I'm just back to it. But, um, but for me, I like podcasts. So in sitting and listening to you know 20-minute podcasts, that will usually take my attention away from what I'm talking about. Um, if you're lying awake at night, sometimes just getting up, don't have any cavernous, you know, just the, the standard sleep stuff like 
some people like warm you know, sort of warm milk or you know something milky some people don't but doing something and engaging in warmth is quite useful mm-hmm. interestingly um, we sleep better in colder environments than in hotter environments if it gets you hot that interferes with sleep and so cooling or can be a very practical thing to do in terms of uh, in terms of sleep, and so there's all these kind of things. It's it's sometimes labelled sleep hygiene, yeah. and there's a load of evidence on it, and a load of stuff on the internet around when you're having your sleep interrupted. There are there's a, a growing evidence around um, using online tools. So don't go to social media; it's going to wind you up. Yeah. Don't go to the news; it's going to wind you up. Don't do your emails. Now, it's really tough not to do emails. We, emails is sort of almost addictive because what we're looking for is those tiny little things that are either interesting or threatening. So we scan down the emails and we see if there's one from the boss. Immediately go for that just to check there's not something there. Or if there's a case that we're worried about, looking for whoever's involved in that case. There's nothing you can do about that at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> and so it's about remembering there's nothing to be done about that. Mm. Set your cell phone aside, turn the emails off. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to do, it's really hard because you'll be worrying about it. And then what you do, you take the idea is you take your mind away from that worry onto whatever it is that you find works in terms of bringing attention to something else. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the next. Uh, episode we will talk a bit more about mindfulness and kind of even do a few kind of exercises about really practically how to move ourselves away from that state of overthinking and and stress Um, but it's been really really interesting to kind of find out what what drives people to to feeling burnout what the contextual factors Um, so yeah thank you so much for chatting today Um, I think, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Uh, I'd love to chat for longer. But yeah, it's been super interesting. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. To keep up to date with the latest goings on at Homeless Link, please follow us on Twitter at Homeless Link. If you're interested in training and development opportunities for yourself, your team or your organisation, get in touch by emailing training at homelesslink.org.uk. We have a range of courses that help staff and organisations develop the skills needed to tackle current issues and improve services.